Hey, folks, Dr. DeVogue here. Thank you for tuning in. I know there's a lot out there, and I appreciate all of you for tuning in. Uh, today's show was truly a, a gift for someone who comes from the world of student affairs. I always cherish times when I can have undergraduate students on the show, and today uh, we'll kind of show you just why. Uh, Kashish Bastula and Kausar Yassin are uh, two sophomores at Harvard University. Um, they have been pretty vocal about uh, what uh, affirmative action looks like on campus at Harvard and more over what it feels like on campus. Uh, both Kashish and Kausar are from Texas. Uh, we talked about that a little bit on the show about they're from two different parts of Texas. They didn't know each other. Um, but the world is a small place and friends of friends know one another. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that as well. Um, but they, uh, benefited from affirmative action and, and some affirmative action practices, uh, that brought them to Harvard. Um, and, uh, they're, they like being at Harvard. I'm not going to speak for what they like or not like, but you know, they're, they're proud Harvard students, but, um, so one of the things about being proud of something means you always want it to do better. And uh, they clearly have thoughts on how Harvard can do better by students, especially when they espouse, institutions espouse a, um, a desire for and a value in diversity. And uh, so you will hear them talk about their experience, how it all feels, and what uh, the community is all about at Harvard and what they see as opportunities for Harvard to do better by students. Um, and knowing as things move forward in the wake of the SCOTUS decision, um, which we talked about in, in uh, the, the, the second episode of the season, we interview with Beth Devonshire, I... I want to talk about in this particular one, we want to really talk about the impact of what it feels like to be in a community that values diversity and is maybe you are the person who has come in or a person who has come in and helped to create a more diverse community. But if the community is not maybe set up for you as best as it can be. Um, and that's really what this is about. This conversation is about that community and is it set up for it and is there room for it to improve and uh Kauser and Kashish have some wonderful ideas about what that means this episode is for anybody it's for anybody who works on any campus not just uh Harvard or one of the elite plus institutions um, but any of our institutions because there's a spirit here uh that Kashish and Kauser talk about um that is relatable for each and every campus. In order for us to create space where students feel that they belong and are valued, um, we need to always be aspiring to better things. And I hope that this conversation uh, positions you to think about what you can be doing better. Well, here it is. Meet Kashish Kauser. So tell me a little bit more about how you all met and what you do together on campus. Whoever wants to start, you can go. I think that I knew of Kashish 
prior to coming to Harvard because we both had a mutual friend in Texas. We're both from Texas, yes. but just from McKinney and I'm from Tyler. There's about a two hour driving distance between the two. But I did a summer program with someone that I actually got really, really close with. And this friend from the summer program actually had worked with Kashish in March for Our Lives and like various gun violence organizing work. And like he connected me to him. We like briefly DM'd on Instagram. And then, yeah, that's just the rest is history. We were both airport. Yeah, we were both on the same flight. Visit us. Did you were you really? So you're on the same flight when you came to campus. You knew of each other. You see, this is one of those things where I always say to people, this is, this is, you know, people always say, oh, it's a small world. I always say, don't shit where you eat because everyone knows you. Like, you never know who you know and you don't know what, you know, I'm not saying you're going to be friends with everybody. I'm not saying you're going to want to work with everybody, but honest to goodness, that's great. And, and you're in the same organization, right? Right, Kashish? Yeah, so we're both we're both education and political co-chairs of the Harvard Radcliffe Asian American Association. Okay. With the largest affinity groups on campus. And we do our best to kind of represent the Pan-Asian community at Harvard through advocacy, through cultural programs, through social events. That's great. And today was a big day. The day I'm recording this is a big day. They did an installation of Harvard's new president. And so President Gay got her installation today, which is exciting. So that's that's amazing. And you had food trucks on campus, which any at least any celebration on a college campus right now needs food trucks. So I appreciate that. So thank you for being here. You know, I wanted to talk to you both because you're quite active as student advocates and also activists at the Harvard campus. And as you know, this summer there was a little little scuff up with the with the legal world specifically related to affirmative action and Harvard was sued by students for fair admissions and lost along with the University of North Carolina and this is changing the face of uh, admissions on college campuses and technically it's really for a very small percentage of the campuses the most highly selective campuses but as somebody who has worked on college campuses for my entire career, one of the things that concerns me about this is that students who are considering college are going to see this and say, I don't belong in college, or this is regardless of where it is. Because people, when you're, when you kind of talk to anyone off the street, they may say, Oh yeah, it's all of colleges. And they're like, Well, this is it, it's a nuanced thing. And let's be clear, there's lots of colleges that have been open access for a long time. And there's this different tiers and this thing. You know, you can go and talk about this till your face falls off. But ultimately, what students hear may very well be, maybe this isn't for me. And and that's the part that that's making me a little little aggravated. And I'm trying to make sense of it in terms of what's the future and what does the future look like. And we're going to talk a little bit about holistic admissions a little later in the show. But I want to start with with you, Kashish, and, and obviously, Kausar, if you want to chime in on this too, because I'm sure you've read the piece that Kashish, it was a uh, July 18th uh, issue of Time Magazine. And Kashish, you wrote a, a really very good, very kudos to you. This is a great piece. 
that you wrote. And I'm going to pull a quote out of here. You say, Harvard's elite student body boasts a misleading yet saccharine sweet diversity. The racial demographics of my class are convincing on paper. Racialization can greatly affect how even well-off students experience life. But the college's ability to maintain its cyclical production of a powerful elite while managing to make it a, make it a few shades darker cannot be immune from criticism. Talk to me more about that. That's a pretty, that's a pretty powerful statement. Yeah, thank you, Laura. I appreciate your praise. I think that there is a lot of room for progress when we think about diversity on Harvard's campus. I don't want to be one of the people who dismisses the importance of race, racialization, and racial identity in today's America, because clearly we've seen time and time again that racial violence continues to be weaponized against students of color, especially on college campuses right now. And we've seen countless attacks on students of color, even at Harvard itself in the past years. But I think in addition to looking at the racial diversity, racialized experiences of Harvard students, we do need to move towards a more intersectional approach of understanding diversity. And I think that entails a process in which the university is directly engaging with communities of color, because we know communities of color are more often disinvested have schools with lower resources and schools and and just, you know, communities overall that have been neglected by even the most local forms of government. So I think when we're looking at diversity, what I was hoping to achieve with this op-ed was a shift in the narrative of what diversity means. To me, diversity is looking at race in addition to how it interacts with class and how and what it means to really stand in for your community at at an institution like Harvard. Mm -hmm. I I think it's I think that's well said. And I think one of the things that happens, especially with well-resourced institutions, you know, there's a lot called on our institutions of higher education to maybe, shall we say, send the tentacles out into the community. And what can we do to create opportunities for students to come in and create more access and that sort of thing? I think the thing I, I think that's great. When I was working at Boston University early in my career, the Chelsea public school system lost its accreditation and and Boston University came in and said, we will run the schools for you for X amount of time to get this going. There was a lot of tension with that. It, it I'm not saying it was the best executed, but the, I think the spirit behind it was we have an institution of higher education right here with an education school that wants to help you. What can we do? And they had opportunities for teachers to get either graduate degrees or additional certification, things like that. They pushed students out into the schools as pub, as student teachers, et cetera. And you you don't necessarily see a lot of opportunities like that anymore because it gets into politics of of who's running the schools and that sort of thing. But I think some of the things that I see as are, and you're from Texas, both of you are from Texas, are, you know, one of the things that we I see and I get very anxious about this from a political standpoint is that these public schools are so under-resourced and they're getting more and more under-resourced. And I'm truly afraid that what's happening right now with the attacks on public schools, it's it's only making it position it so that public school students are not going to be seen as viable candidates to go into higher education or at least in certain 
layers of higher education. Um, I hope I'm not becoming paranoid in my old age, but I'm very worried about this. You know, Kausar, when I when I say that, and you're in also reflecting on this idea of what does diversity actually look like in three dimensions at Harvard, where have you seen maybe a, a kind of some 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 holes in the diversity kind of mindset and what it looks like in practice at at Harvard? Yeah, absolutely. I think that in my experience and at least just like at a glance from what I've seen in my classes, in extracurricular spaces, et cetera, on campus is very much what Kashish's op-ed like echoes in the sense that I oftentimes, I was, for example, just in my uh, chemistry lab my first semester and like all of my lab mates, among all of them, I was the only one that wasn't a legacy student. And despite our table being mainly students of color, I was the only non-legacy in that group. I was also the only one that was on financial aid among my lab group. Mm. And so mm. I think that that's really positioned me to have, I kind of like have a double take because I think that the diversity I had assumed that would be on Harvard's campus was not at all what like I had pictured. And just like because of these things that I am lacking that my peers had, I found myself at like at a loss and having like a very difficult time first of all in this chemistry class but that may just be because like I ended up not sticking with pre-med and then shifted gears over to history but regardless I definitely no, so you're not the last student oh. or the first to <laughs> say that so so move on yes absolutely <laughs> and so folks I think that I ended up like struggling a lot more than some other peers who mm -hmm. were given certain resources and I had to play catch up a lot. Yeah. Uh, just like, although this institution has like plenty of resources, it's oftentimes very hidden for students like, like me, um, mm -hmm. to be able to find the mechanisms to succeed here. And oftentimes I would dedicate maybe more time to like going to office hours instead of possibly like a club or that could possibly look good on a resume. I don't know. Right. So right. how like I have invested my time already put me at a disadvantage compared to other students that may have used that time, such valuable time and energy on other things, for example. Mm -hmm. I didn't even know what office hours. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> I didn't even know what office hours were before Harvard, really. And like just echoing what Kausar was saying, I think there are a lot of things that like it, there are a lot of ways that Harvard feels as though it's an institution built for private school, prep school students. Mm -hmm. So I definitely share that concern of one day, especially with the way in which public education is going in many parts mm -hmm. of the country, especially where we come from Texas, there, it definitely is a valid fear that public school students just will simply lose out on many opportunities or even the dream, the opportunity of dreaming of going to a school. Right. Right. Yeah. And then just like to add on to that, I was a little worried about even like asking a question in the middle of class or like even making that first step to go to office hours. Mm. Um, I felt like, oh, I don't know, like the question I'm asking you is stupid. Like, I don't feel competent enough compared to my peers. Maybe I should like save my face in front of this professor or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. It just there was a big like imbalance there in terms of how I felt. Yeah. Well, and that's what you're 
talking about, and and I'm nodding like furiously because, you know, when I've over my 30 years working with students, anyone who's a first generation college student, no matter what campus I've been on, what you're saying is very much part of this, you know, insecurity, this imposter syndrome, whatever people want to want to label it as of saying, I've come onto a campus. I don't know the lingo. I don't know that because every college campus has this like hidden language. And, you know, we're walking around and there's, you know, what people call buildings and what people call registration and what people call a certain dining hall. It's this hidden language. And you're like, I can't like, can someone give me flashcards? I really need something here that is going to tell me what's going on. And that feeling and then compound that on top of now I also am sitting in a in a room and I am literally being told, especially at a place like Harvard, that. I am the I am the third in my family to attend Harvard. I am the this number in my family to attend. And you're saying I am the first. I am still trying to figure this place out. And wow, I don't know where I fit and I got to find my space. So good on both of you. Okay, for getting to this point, but also you're both sophomores. You've made it through. You've made some changes in your academic direction, which is absolutely normal. And, you know, that idea of what are you going to do? I'm 56 years old. I still don't know what I'm going to be when I grow up. So you can all just calm down. But there is that layer of all of this that you say, okay, there was a reason I came in this direction. And Kausar, you wrote in your admissions essay, you specifically talked about your lived experience being of Uyghur descent. And and why, tell us, you know, when you were putting that together, obviously it's your own lived experience. It is something that defines you as an individual. It is your authentic voice. One of the things I worry about right now is in this holistic enrollment discussion, there is this saying, we want to hear from students about what they've had to overcome, what they've had to do, And there are some people in the admissions world who are saying, are we challenging students to come up with this trauma, to come up with a story, to come up with what we think is the right thing to say? You just told your authentic voice. But then when you see that someone else has had to maneuver something, tell me a little bit about how that makes you feel. Yeah, absolutely. I think that it's... I guess very disheartening because in a way it kind of invalidates a lot of my lived experience, like just as a blanket statement of many students trying, I guess, to maybe exaggerate certain things or whatever. But I think my lived experience is just very personal to me because first of all, like being Uyghur in tight, like in the heart of East Texas from a low income background, my parents are in public education and then just like being involved in advocacy work at the high school level, I think that my identity has driven a lot of what I perceive social justice to look like in my vision for what a just world looks like. Mm. And that's kind of what I wrote about in my essay as well. Like in addition to my Uyghur identity, I talked about how that informs my advocacy at like being involved in the campaign to change my high school's name from Robert E. Lee High School to a different name entirely. And so I think that like just that experience was very much driven by what I was grown up with, not being able to see my family members abroad, how my parents can't communicate with anyone is, I, I think that like 
that has given me this vision for what human rights are like, right? And I think that uh, at the, I think that obviously the college admissions process is, I think, littered with uh, so many, uh, like so much like socioeconomic disparity. Because I personally like just wrote from the heart and like thought what I thought was okay on my application. I didn't necessarily have like a college counselor or like people breathing down my soul, like shoulders telling me like who obviously may, I may have paid for or they may have paid for to help them with this application process on, right. oh, this is what people are looking for. This is what they're looking for. And I like obviously my parents and I, we didn't afford like a college counselor for my process. In fact, right. my parents weren't even like aware of all the schools I was even applying to. So I think that just in general, like obviously maybe that manipulation of like struggle and identity in people's like college applications is disheartening. But I think that just fits into this wider issue of how class and like feeds into disparities when it comes to college admissions, not just from like the admissions table standpoint, but even from like prior when before the application even gets to that point of like how to construct the story, what essays to do, like I'm going to spend X amount of money on SAT prep or something like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so it like the college admissions process has become very like much capitalized off of by like very a lot of like private companies and whatever. And that like even more like puts a further disparity on people that aren't able to take part in this system are of this like capitalized structure of college admissions. And in general, yeah, it's just very disheartening. And yeah, that's just kind of my take on it was. Yeah, I think you bring up a good point. And, and I want to pull Kashish into this because your your essay and some of the other information I've seen about the two of you is that, you know, you've got this this component of society that has access to all the right stuff from the beginning of time and moving all the way in and saying, okay, well, you got to go to this prep school or you have to have this college counselor or you have to have this kind of thing. And that puts you at a leg up regardless of, of lots of other things. You're going to be at a leg up because you know, you know, the system. It's like, and you know, if I'm going to buy Taylor Swift tickets, I know to turn on my computer and every other computer in my house and we're going to hit refresh over and over and over and over again until I get those damn tickets. Right. But if I only have one computer in my house, I'm going to be less likely to be able to get that ticket. Okay. And so it is turned into that across the board. And I think one of the things that your essay made me think of about this idea of we want diversity on our campuses. We want people to come in from all sorts of backgrounds. And it's as if you've invited someone over for a dinner party. They bring a dish and they and you say, you can leave the dish outside, but you can come in. And it's this very weird dichotomy. You can come in, but you can't eat anything you're familiar with. You can't have something that is part of you that come in other than your body, but your spirit, who you are and all that, that it made me think of that in some way. And I think that that's where the holistic part loses sight is that yeah, we're going to have, we're going to evaluate essays and maybe we'll have interviews and maybe we'll do this, that, and the other thing. But admissions is more than that. It's about making sure once they're on campus that the students actually feels connected. Kashish, what are your thoughts on that? 
Yeah, I'm really happy that you're bringing this up because I think something I recently discovered last semester in one of my history classes was an archival document of Edmonia Lewis, who's a famous sculptress who had studied at Oberlin College in uh, the 19th century. And uh, she was one of the very first women of color to study at Oberlin, uh, which is a very elite institution in Ohio. And her experiences there kind of reflect this uh, continuing phenomenon of students of color, students of marginalized backgrounds, walking into these very elite campuses, feeling like they have to be arriving or coming into these spaces in a very specific, very curated way. Sometimes it feels like we have to come at least for me, sometimes from my personal experience, I feel like I do have to have some sort of cultivatedness in order to even participate fully in the Harvard experience. And and I think there there are a lot of efforts right now that are currently seeking to push back against that. Students practicing their cultural events, students coming together and forming you know community bonds, but also cross-community bonds, I think, are all ways of pushing back on this idea that there's one way to fit into this campus culture. There's also currently a movement to create cultural houses at Harvard, something that faced a lot of pushback from with the Harvard administration. But there are students from every different background that really want this cultural center for their respective backgrounds to practice community and to practice their cultures. But also we're same thing for religious backgrounds. There are only two religious, fully, you know, robust religious centers on campus. That is the Memorial Church and Hillel for Jewish students. But that leaves many other students of all other religious backgrounds homeless when it comes to faith. Uh, so I think there is a lot of need for us to focus on what happens once a student is admitted. How do we create an affirming campus culture for those students as well? And I, I, I definitely agree. I think admissions officers and I think admissions officers should be thinking about more than just the college admissions process, but thinking about recruitment. So looking before the admissions process, but also after and what happens once a student matriculates. I want to ask you both this question. How did you decide to apply to Harvard? Did someone come to your high school or did you just kind of say, I'm going to I'm going to shoot it at the moon? What what happened here? The the latter. (laughs) It was the latter. I feel like most people have heard about Harvard. And so I was. I mean, I'm going to regret this later down the line if I tell people that I didn't even try. So we'll just submit an application. No, no, no. I, I mean, I think it's it's not to me you didn't try. You just, it, no one came to you. I guess that's the question is yeah. no one came to you. Okay. And the same, and the same thing with, with, with you, correct, Kashish? So I actually, I think I didn't even have the confidence to apply to Harvard until my English teacher like it was a get to know you activity in my senior year of high school and my English teacher mm-hmm. read a little bit about what I wrote on the paper that I submitted in class. And he was like, you like, you really should consider applying to an elite institution. And he threw the name Harvard out there. And I think that's what really got my mind thinking that yep. th- this was a possibility for me. Um, Cause I don't really think anyone had ever believed in me like that at school. And I didn't see my, that being a possibility. And it was that September of my senior year that I started my application to Harvard. And it's it's that kind of moment where someone says, have you thought about this? It could be a teacher. It could be 
a guidance counselor literally could be. And, but but I think one of the biggest problems is that institutions, they the the road warriors, as I like to call them, the people who work for admissions and go out there and and you know go to high school gyms and cafeterias and all that kind of thing. They they don't make it into every community and that there was a reason I was talking to some graduate students about this the other day in one of the programs that I teach. And I said, you know, it's I think we all have lost perspective on something that has happened in very short memory ago, which is during the pandemic when you couldn't travel and it wasn't safe to do a college tour. Colleges and universities were getting their most diverse pools of candidates because people, it leveled that playing field of, oh, I don't have to go visit you, but I can still apply to you and I can do a virtual tour. Okay, I'm going to do that. And then as soon as things opened back up again, we said, nope, no more virtual tours. We're not doing this anymore. You need to come to us. You need to see this. And I, and I truly believe that, that we lost a huge opportunity to be able to say, you know what? Maybe, maybe it is. It's, it's already saying to people, if you don't have the money to travel to Cambridge, you don't get to apply to Cambridge, or maybe you shouldn't apply, or that is something that might be difficult. Did, did, did you all come over? I mean, what, what did the admissions experience look like for you? I think, I don't know if, uh, for me, I think the first time I came to, yeah, the first time I visited Harvard was for visit us, the visiting program. So I had not visited Harvard before being admitted or before even okay. applying. And that was when I met Kausar as well on that trip for the first time in person. And that was, you know, that flight was covered by Harvard. So that's really the only reason why it was possible for me. Yeah. So yeah, I, I completely agree. I think there was a lot from the COVID era that made admissions more accessible. And I, I, it is kind of a scary thought for me to think like if I was even born a couple years before, or a couple years after, there's a chance that maybe the admissions policies would not have worked in my favor. And I, the, the, you know, the dominoes wouldn't have aligned so that I would have ended up applying it to Harvard because it was actually also the test optional policies that really encouraged me to even uh, consider applying. I've never been a strong test taker and I knew that it wouldn't be something that I would thrive in as a high school senior when it comes to submitting test scores. So not having to submit my test score to Harvard, really, I, I strongly believe that it's one of the things that gave me the confidence to even apply in the first place. Do you both think about, you know, you just brought that up, is that if if you had been born, you know, a couple of years later, that Harvard wouldn't be an opportunity for you because of the new laws. Is that something that, that goes through your mind in with any regularity? I mean, people are now talking about how much do you think about the Roman Empire? How much do you think about not <laughs> about the change in terms of all of in terms of affirmative action and what that would look like for your trajectory in life? Do you think about it pretty actively? I, I, yeah, I honestly like it when it comes even just beyond the test optional stuff, the virtual admissions programming, I think there's a lot that is happening that a lot that high schoolers are thinking about right now when it comes to their own identities. I mean, I know in Texas specifically, so many schools, so many student bodies are being uh, stripped of the ability to talk about identity in an honest way. When, whether it's racial identity, sexuality, gender identity, there is so much restriction right now 
and I, it, it really, I, I mean, and honestly, it, it is something I have had on my mind is imagine I was, instead of being a sophomore in college right now, I was a sophomore in high school. Yeah. I would be in the middle in, in Texas. I would be in the middle of all of these culture wars in a way that I kind of experienced when I was in high school, but not to the fullest extent as, as is being played out right now in yeah. certain states. And, and I, I strongly do believe that some of these, some of this legislation, some of this, some of these court decisions that are being implemented right now will have disastrous effects on many students. So many, I'm worried about the next generation of transgender students mm-hmm. who will be forced to come out to their families and who will not have affirming and safe places to go to school. What is the admissions process look like for them? So I think there is a lot of concern to have across the board, especially in you know, towards the gray areas that we seem to be approaching as a country right now. Yeah. And these questions, I don't necessarily have to imagine because I'm actually kind of living through it with my two younger sisters. One's a freshman in high school and one's a junior in high school. And they both went to the same, they're both going to the same high school I went to. And a lot of concerns they're having, like they're now living through a time in their educational career where my like school district is allowing teachers to be armed and like they're just living at in a very scary world that like I was fortunate enough to escape and I still kind of have a lot of guilt because I'm up here. And I think that's just another thing that I still feel being having like a pretty large family and a family that's like not equipped with the tools and resources to be able to handle like this ever changing like political climate. My mom is a public school teacher and her having to deal with additional like volatile like school policies throughout the years has placed like so much stress on my family and I've been trying to figure out ways as to how to navigate like this new way because I now I feel like that I can't really my sisters can't go off of my experience they're also having to build um a new path for themselves in a way that they have a brand new experience and a brand new world to like navigate college admissions through um something that I all it was already new to my family to begin with but then now it's like new again if that makes sense you you are both managing a lot of emotional push pull where there's moments where you should be pretty damn proud of yourselves in terms of where you're sitting but then you have this moment of looking back and going but what if this had happened would I be here and Kosar, because you're just looking at your sisters and you're able to say, then I could be that, Oof. you know, that's a lot. That's heavy shit. I, I mean, th- and that's one of the other pieces of this is that when you're trying to get assistance and I don't I don't know what the culture is on the on the campus there at Harvard, but I'm wondering, I know every college campus is struggling with mental health and about how to support students. We were under staffed as far as college mental health providers 10 years before the pandemic and then the pandemic happened and and we never caught up and so we've all been kind of playing treading water but i think some of the trauma and some of the guilt and some of the anxiety and some of the feelings that you bring are very much i mean it's one thing to be able to provide students with a space for cultural activities and a cultural house but it's another conversation about how do you provide mental health support to students of divergent and differing backgrounds 
in terms of what they bring, because some of the I would venture to guess that it might be difficult to find strong mental health support for students who are coming in with the diversity of experiences and lived experience and 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 issues that you both just just the two of you are putting out in front of me. Am I am I being a little too critical? No, not at all. I think that <laughs> I think that like you're 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 like I I definitely feel everything because I think for the first time I got to see some some of my like an outlet for me to kind of get out some of my emotions and mm-hmm. like experiences in the realm of mental health, especially at Harvard was there was like an of and the small corner of like this one newsletter. I can't even remember where or which newsletter it was. But they're like launching our like CAMS, like mental health services here at Harvard. They're yep. launching this one series where a psychiatrist, Asian American psychiatrist is going to have like an intimate, like closed once a month, like discussion on like Asian, like a lot of the mental health, prevalent mental health issues among Asian Americans here. And this was, I, I just sat there like staring at this email. Um, so shocked because I don't think I've ever seen a resource like this my first year. Um, and I don't really, and a resource like this also just doesn't exist, um, for other like groups on campus, for instance. Right. Right. So, and this is a brand new program and it only happens once a month for like an hour. And my, it, the hours don't even align well with like courses because I have like section and class the times that I would possibly be able to participate. And so that in itself already is pretty telling of available mental health resources for students with backgrounds like ours and not just like racial backgrounds, but even being from the South, being from a low income background. I don't think there's just enough support. No, no. And and that it also we always are struggling with providing support for folks who maybe their home tradition is not to use that support. So that's always harder, too, because when you're trying to get it in front of people and say, it's not a bad thing. And they go, no, there's no way my family is going to want to deceive any of this. You know, it's, it's hard. Um, I want to spend our last couple minutes together really talking about your wishes, the two of you. I mean, if you could map out some, you know, bullet points for people at institutions, especially some of our more competitive, more elite institutions to be able to, to understand, you know, it, what does holistic enrollment look like from your perspective and where are they missing the mark? Are there two or three bullet points that you really both individually would like them to hear and evaluate what that looks like in practice on their own campus? Oftentimes we say every school has to do this. That's baloney. Not every school has to do anything because every school is different. Okay. But there's, I speak about this all the time. What's the spirit behind it? What's the spirit that you're trying to accomplish? What's that outcome? What's that feeling? I want to ask both of you if you, if you could give the folks at an elite institution as they're mapping out their holistic enrollment, what are the two things that matter the most to you that you wish that they would put into practice? And either one of you can start. This is a hard question. I, I think right off the bat, I would just want more like regular everyday people at Harvard. That's not too much to ask for. I think it's not normal that I 
am constantly meeting the child of a billionaire every other day, yeah. every day, if you will. And I just think that yeah. that really, you know, this idea that that's something about that can be fair doesn't mm-hmm. sit right. Yeah, I think it is completely unfair the way that school here is working right now. So I just want to see more people across the board, like people who just really represent what America is. And what more average Joes. Chad, that's an average Joe. Exactly. Like that too much to ask for. And I think that would obviously come with, you know, more, you know, investment and recruit into the recruiting programs that Harvard conducts. I think it's time to stop sending admissions officers to the same prep schools every year and think about ways that we can be really innovative with how we're allowing and like sponsoring dreams because Harvard really does have a unique ability to almost plant seeds across the country, across the world in all of these different places and give students the hope, give students the dreams to see themselves at a school like Harvard. I think there is, even if, you know, Harvard is such a small school and admitting, you know, every, every qualified applicant is obviously never going to be a realistic scenario for such a small school, but there are always ways to fairly and morally use the resources that this institution has. And it, Harvard as an, as a university is simply not living up to its obligations as an institution of higher education. And that is going to be eating at education as a whole, democracy, and will boil all the way down to the individual level of many, many students, many families being left behind. Yeah. And then I guess for me, the biggest thing that I request, I guess, for colleges like Harvard and institutions like Harvard to do is definitely working towards making this environment once students access it. Obviously, Kashishu like talks about like bridging that accessibility barrier and disparity. But I think once we're here, we have a lot of expectations and a lot, we just need a lot more resources. And so I think that students, once they get here, they already do feel unsafe. Like I'm referencing back to the Leverett House swatting incident in which a dorm of four Black students were swatted in the middle of the night by like Harvard University police in riot gear. And I'm just thinking about how this environment is very hostile towards students that obviously have like gone through and like made it past this accessibility barrier, first of all. But once they're here, they have a whole new host of issues that they probably never even conceived of. I definitely didn't conceive of any of this. And so I think that working towards an environment that's safer for students on campus, as well as representation being huge, I think that like seeing ourselves in curriculum, seeing ourselves in faculty and staff are so important. I would love to see, I don't know, someone um, who is like Uyghur on this campus, that's a tenured faculty, you know, I haven't seen that yet. And so I think that, that there's a lot more steps towards diversifying, like not only just like the student body, socioeconomically, racially, like ethnically, but then also in terms of the people serving our students on this campus, as well as just making us overall feel more safe and providing these resources, mental health, et cetera. I think you two have a lot of very good suggestions and they're not, they're not out of bounds. And I think that, you know, it's kind of like 
you know, when you do anything and when you bring something into your life, you have to make things work in that space. You know, if you have a, if you have a child is born into your family and they are allergic to peanuts, you make the space livable for them. Okay. And I'm not going to uh, com- compare you two with a peanut, but, and, or an allergy, but I think that you understand the, the analogy here is that, you know, you have to work to make sure the place allows for the individuals there to thrive. And that's really what the two of you are asking for. And I, and I was really happy that Kashish, you started with the access piece and Kosar, you talked about the idea of how do you get them to flourish once you're there? And I think that you two have provided two very strong arguments, but I want to thank you two for spending a bit of time uh, today with me. We are out of time and it was actually a pleasure to meet you two virtually and hopefully we will meet up in three dimensions and in real space. I'm only a little, I'm only a short drive. I'm not one to drive to Harvard Square, but I will uh, take public transit and curse it the whole way there. So there we go. (laughs) So (laughs) Kashish and Kausar, congratulations. You are both exceptional humans and I cannot wait to see what you do. And thank you for being here. Thank you for giving us this opportunity. (laughs) Always nice to reflect on our experiences, I think. Kausar and I have gone through a lot together on campus as well. And yeah, it's it's been a rough journey, but I think it's also been really beautiful at the same time. So thanks for letting us talk about it. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that. that I want to thank our guests, Kashish Kastola and Kausar Yassin. Uh, for giving uh, time uh, for this wonderful interview. Um, and that was great. And uh, I want to show them some appreciation. I also want to uh, give a shout out to uh, their friend, Oliver Slayton, and my friend, Oliver Slayton, um, who connected us. Uh, so, Oliver, thank you. Thank you for being an Office Hours listener. In order to grow our community, rate, review, and share podcasts with your network, I would really appreciate it. And hey, don't forget the show notes. In there, you'll see a link to Kashish's wonderful piece in Time Magazine, as well as some other information. I'm a Dr. DeVoe is on social media. That's me. I'm on all over social media. And there's a link in the show notes to get you to all my social media. Uh, thank you to my wonderful producer, David Yaz. Office Hours is a production of Pod 617 Studios in Westwood, Massachusetts. Now, get out there and learn something.